What is up, Brad fans? Welcome back, and thanks for joining joining the show once again. Uh, very pleased to bring you this conversation. Uh, I know you'll enjoy it. I was joined this episode by Stephen Doyle, who is a molecular and computational biologist working uh, with parasites, something I'm very familiar with, uh, a topic I quite enjoy. So Steve is a group leader at the Sanger Institute in the UK, Sanger Institute being one of the biggest uh, labs for genomics, uh, gene sequencing, all of this kind of stuff. And that's one of the reasons I reached out to Steve. I followed him for a while on on Twitter. Um, He's very immersed in the world of, you know, the latest in, in terms of genome sequencing, gene sequencing, and then he applies that to parasites, which we will talk about looking for uh, resistance genes, how parasites can evade uh, the drugs that we throw at them. But Steve is also just well-versed in, in all of the sequencing technology, and so he was able to kind of help us break down um, some of the things that we've been hearing about in terms of uh, variants uh, with the coronavirus, uh, molecular epidemiology, how you use genome sequencing to sort of track an outbreak, which you may have heard about uh, with this whole coronavirus situation. Um, so yeah, very knowledgeable in that stuff. Really enjoyed speaking with him. And I think you will uh, hopefully learn a little bit about some of these terms that you're hearing thrown about maybe in the news. Uh, we also talked about the importance of open science and um Steve had some comments about uh, preprint, um, publishing preprint papers, which, if you remember, a couple episodes back, I spoke about with Dr. Martin Nielsen, uh, also a parasite parasite guy. Um, and Steve has kind of a different take on it, and he laid out why, you know, especially for his field of genomics, um, that, that preprint works really well and that it's it's a, it's advantageous now. I don't think Martin would disagree with any of that, but they did have differing opinions on it. So it was it was Steve had had reached out on Twitter to kind of start a discussion on some of those things that uh, Martin and I had talked about, and we continued that discussion here. So um, he's got a really interesting uh, view on some of the science communication stuff, uh, how to get that out there, how to get science out to people, make it more accessible, not just to the public per se, but to um, People in low and middle income countries. That was a, an, a something he brought up as a uh, uh, an avenue of science communication that I had never really thought about. But but that is another you know, um, yeah, lane uh, of science communication that you could that you could get into as an academic. And he uh, explained some of the projects he does, um, trying to share knowledge and share resources and stuff with places that might not have access to you know, some of the financial resources or laboratory resources that, that, that other places have. So really great to have Steve on the show. You can follow him on Twitter. He's a great follow on Twitter, uh, adding some, like I said, some explanations and some comments on all of this genomic stuff. Uh, if you have any interest in genomics, bioinformatics, gene sequencing, that kind of stuff, he's a great, great guy to follow uh, on Twitter at Stephen underscore underscore Doyle. So that's Stephen with a P-H, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, underscore, underscore, Doyle, D-O-Y-L-E, Stephen Doyle. Um, and of course, follow us at 2 brad for you on Twitter and Instagram. You can hit me up at bvamparadon at Twitter and Instagram. Uh, send the show an email, 2 brad for you at gmail.com, or leave us a voice message 
we will listen to them and read and play them on the show. Um, speakpipe.com slash too brad for you is where you can leave that voice message. All of this is available on our website, too brad for you.wordpress.com. Really, really hope that you reach out uh, and become part of the show. That would be nothing would make me happier. Um, yeah, and then just subscribe and comment, rate us, all that kind of stuff really, really helps. So that's it for me for now. Uh, please enjoy my conversation with Stephen Doyle. Steve, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for thanks for joining the show this Monday afternoon, taking some time out of your day. It's really nice to meet you. I followed you on Twitter for a while. It's my pleasure. Um, thank you for inviting me. I mean, it's it's really excited to to chat to you. I I, I have followed you for a long time, um, <laughs> both both when you were doing science and uh, since leaving science. And so <laughs> it's um it's great to be great to be a part of this side. Yeah. Of things. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I, I think, you know, the listeners are probably, your accent probably gives you away, at least it gives you away to me, but you're originally from <laughs> Australia, correct? I am, yeah. I'm originally from Melbourne, born and bred. Yep. Yeah, and now in the UK? Yeah, so we moved to the UK in 2015, um, and so, yeah, just over five years now. It's because, uh, we'll, and we'll get into this, you're at the Sanger Institute. That's in Cambridge, correct? Just south of Cambridge, about 20 minutes okay. south of Cambridge, out in the, the green fields in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, um, right. I've, uh, I've been to Cambridge a couple times, and it's always people always say to me that it's like this sort of window um, in the UK where you actually get sunshine yeah. and whatnot a lot of times during the year and stuff. So it's got this like weird weather pattern where it tends to be a lot sunnier than most places in the UK, so... I, I was really prepared moving from Australia. I, Melbourne hasn't got the best weather all the time. It gets hotter in the summer and not as cold in the winter, but uh, I was prepared for it to be wet and miserable. And uh, actually, this area is one of the driest in the UK, and so yeah, uh, we don't get a huge amount of rain, really. It's surprising. Yeah, it's I nice. got one more thing on the uh, the sort of you know mo Australian moving to UK thing because... I don't know if you've been to Canada. I'm originally from Canada. There's a lot of, I feel, uh, synergy between Australia and Canada. You know, even though we're on opposite sides of the world, yeah. we have big countries, sparsely populated, weather and the elements. For you guys, it tends to be hot. Uh, us, it's cold. It play a big part of life. Um, and then obviously the former British colony thing, you know, so I don't, I don't know if you've noticed this, but for me, you know, my age group of people, there was always people going to like live in Australia for a year. And where I'm from in Canada is in where all the ski hills are, the mountains and stuff are. And we, it yeah. was just filled with Australian kids coming to work and, and ski in the mountains and stuff. Yeah. So I've always felt there's this synergy, this like we get each other, even though we're so far apart. But I have to say, I feel like you guys tend a little bit more towards British culture and we're kind of a little, you know, we're so influenced by America. Yeah. Was it that big of a stretch for you go, to go to the UK or do you no. see those similarities? Am I way off? No, I, I think um, it, it wasn't a big stretch. You know, it wasn't a culture shock um, that you would get moving to certainly other places in Europe, for example. I mean, we didn't have to deal mm -hmm. with a language change or anything like that. I think Australia and and British humour is quite similar, <laughs> and uh, so that 
that we, we fit right in in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. So yeah, no, it wasn't it wasn't such a big difference. I think I think a lot of people were shocked that we moved over here, especially to the sort of small <clears throat> country town that we live in. And um, they would notice the Australian accent very quickly and then say, why did you move here? <laughs> um, shock horror, because I think everyone thinks Australia is sunny all the time and we all live on the beach. And, well, a lot of people, yeah. you know, everyone lives on the, you know, everyone lives, well, the, the majority of the population lives <clears throat> within a relatively short distance of the coast. But, um, yeah, being from down south, being in Melbourne, it's really variable weather and uh, it's actually not too different to where we are here in the UK. So, Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I get the same thing here uh, in Germany when we say we're from Canada. Like, I'm always shocked because the German people are pretty blunt and they'll just say, what are you doing here? Yeah, exactly. Canada's great. Why did yeah. you move here? And then you got to be like, well, you know, your your country's not bad either. There's yeah. some opportunities here that we don't get other places, and Europe's pretty cool and and stuff like that. But they're just like, why are you here? <laughs> yeah. Why would you leave Canada? It's yeah. got that, and I think Australia has that uh, that reputation as well of like these sort of paradise kind of places where everybody gets along and things are good. And yeah. obviously, every country has its own plus and plus and minus, pros and cons. But yeah. anyway. We got in touch uh, on Twitter because, uh, well, we started a Twitter conversation based on an episode I did previously with uh, Martin Nielsen, um, who is also a parasitologist. You work with parasites. I used to work with parasites. We're all in this field together. Um, and you had mentioned some of his comments about preprint. So for to refresh people who maybe listened to it a while ago or hadn't listened to it, Martin and I were talking about science communication sort of broadly, generally, and he mentioned this sort of, I guess it's a rather new uh, phenomenon, we'll say, of preprint servers. So rather than your, or you, it's basically a place where scientists can publish their work before it goes through the sort of rigorous um, peer review process. And the peer review process is just getting other people in the field to critique the work, suggest um, changes, that kind of thing. And then, you know, the editors of the journals decide whether, okay, this has been, you know, sufficiently reviewed and now it's published. So we kind of like, that's sort of the gold standard of like, now this is out there in the scientific community. Whereas preprint, it now offers people a chance to publish online before going through that process, which has its pros and cons. So Martin wasn't a big fan of it. He thought, you know, you can go back and listen to that episode, people, if you want to get the get the his take on that. But there is pros and cons to this process. So Martin wasn't a huge fan, kind of felt like we really need that peer review process. And um, if people don't understand that these papers that are out there on the internet on these preprint servers, if they don't understand that it hasn't gone through that sort of rigorous um, sort of checking process, you have to treat that information differently. And then you jumped in to talk about some of the pros that you thought were there. Um, some of them may be more a little unique to your field, which is genomics broadly, yeah. um, in terms of getting information out that everyone can can share. So maybe you want to jump in here and just kind of lay out your kind of case or what you find attractive about the preprint process. Sure. Um, so I guess um, the best place to start 
is why I think open science is so important to science in general. Um, it's important for researchers. It's important for the public. Um, I think that we need to be as transparent as possible and, and the way to do that is, is to try and be as open as possible <clears throat> because a lot of science um, is competitive. It is done behind closed doors. Um, it's not always reported in the way that it should. And um, part of that competition is because we're going for grants or going to try and publish papers in uh, journals that we, we believe are reputable. And uh, we, you know, as scientists, we pay money or the university pay money to these big journals to, to, to have the privilege of publishing our own work and, 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 and having it in a glossy journal. And so there's all this competition, there's all this money involved. And a lot of a lot of that really ultimately restricts science being done. Um, the scientific publishing model is not um, equitable um, because there's money involved, and um, not everyone can publish in the highest impact journal, regardless of whether um, their their research is is. Uh, perfectly suitable for publishing in that journal. So there's 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 one one problem with the, the, the current journal system. And the second one is that not everyone can access research in those in those journals because there's a subscription model. Some journals um, require you to pay money to either access an individual article or a li university library or um, institute will pay, you know, quite a substantial amount of money to the journal to, to allow their researchers to have access to that. And so you can now imagine that there's actually a large proportion of researchers in the world, particularly in low and middle income countries, that just do not have that access. And so um, preprinting is uh, one way of um, allowing scientific research to be put into a public domain uh, that doesn't cost any money. And it's it's open access. It allows anybody to to access that that information. And this has been around for a number of years. It's not necessarily recent, um, but it's perhaps more recent, if you like, in medicine and uh, areas like genomics that I work in. Uh, certainly, um, I don't even want to put a date on it, but I, I've been publishing in I've been putting our papers in um, one preprint server bioarchive for at least five or six years maybe maybe slightly longer I think I think 2015 or 2014 was the first time we used that but in 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 um, fields such as physics and mathematics these these um, preprint servers have been going much longer and are much more accepted in their communities. And so um, while it feels new and strange to some, I think that there is a real shift in, in perception about their use. And um, the discussion you're having um, on the previous podcast was really around one negative aspect in that because um, it's open and it's because uh, basically anyone, I'm going to say that with virtual inverted commas, anyone can publish it, that there's perhaps some problematic research 
in, in preprint servers. And I think that's true to, to a degree. But at the same time, there's problematic research in you know, nature or science or cell, um, you know, really big journals um, that people pay thousands of dollars or pounds just, just to publish it. I mean, now I think it costs close to nine and a half thousand euros to publish in nature. It, it, that's just for one one paper to go through the publication process. It's it's just it's completely inequitable. So mm-hmm. um, so there's there's problems in peer review. It's you know I have published quite a few papers now. I've reviewed a lot of papers as a peer reviewer, and I'm also an associate editor for Parasites and Vectors, one of the journals um, that publishes a lot of the research that. I guess I read and I'm interested in. It's not a high tier journal, but it's a. It's a, it's a I, I've published a few of my papers in Parasites and Vectors, and so I've seen this from you know multiple angles, all all of the angles that you can think of of the process, and um, mm-hmm. and and I've got enough experience now to know that peer review is not perfect. There are there are ways, not ways that you can game game the system if you like, but there there are certainly ways that, you know. You can tell that it's gone through peer review very easily, uh, when it maybe it shouldn't have, um, and there's other times where you know papers will get hard done by because a particular reviewer has a problem with it for a good or or not reason. So, um, in terms of the good things, I think that are, are missed, but that perhaps people don't realise about um, peer reviews. Uh, sorry, um, uh, preprints especially from someone coming from an early career research perspective. And I've only just started my own lab at Sanger um, and I've been postdocing for a, a few years. And I've gone through this process where I've been in short-term contracts or short to medium-term contracts. Um, I've, I've moved from Australia to the UK. I've set up new research uh, lines of inquiry. All of these things take time. And... Uh, one of the problems about publishing all of that work is that also takes time. People perhaps don't realize that to publish a peer-reviewed article, you know, it takes a certain amount of time to, to do the research. It might be a year or two. It takes time to write the paper. It takes time to get all your co-authors to sign off and uh, on it. And then once you press submit on a journal, uh, submit to a journal, then it might take um, weeks before the editor even responds properly um, it might get desk rejected which means that the editor just says no it's not a good fit for our journal um, but if it does go to go out to peer review peer reviewers usually have two to four weeks maybe sometimes shorter but um, often two to four weeks so you're waiting a couple of months they're going to get some peer reviews back it might take a few months to make the corrections you resubmit it, takes a few more months. You know, it could be a six months to 12 months process between pressing submit when you think your research is ready for the world to see and it being published in a, in a, in a glossy journal. Now, what a, peer, what a preprint does is it basically allows you to, to make that visible from the get-go. Now, in my experience, I've submitted to a journal and on the same day or essentially the same day I submitted to the preprint server. So what I believe in it 
is my research is is good enough to submit to a journal and it's good enough to submit to um, a preprint. And what that does as an early career researcher is it allows you to be visible. Um, if you're applying for grants or fellowships or your next job and you have research that's not published, it's not visible. No one can see that at all. Um, you know, you don't really have any evidence that you've done any of that. Um, you know, it, it's very difficult to make a strong case to say that you're the best at this when you don't have any evidence that you're the best at this. Whereas mm -hmm. what a preprint does is it means that it's open, that a reviewer of your grant or your fellowship or your next job can click on the link, see what you've done, read it in in the way that they would read a, a journal article, a published journal article, and can judge you on your work. And I think that that is extremely powerful because, as I said, um, postdocs, so people who have done their PhD and uh, you know, basically in training to try and become an independent um, group leader, usually do one or a, f a few postdocs. And as I said, they're two, maybe three-year positions. It's very difficult, even in that three-year time, to, to turn around publications or multiple publications. But preprinting gives you that, that evidence. You can write that. A lot of journals now will allow you to cite um, preprints. Um, grants uh, will allow you to cite preprints. And so it's, it's an excellent, excellent way for an early career researcher to, to show evidence of what they've done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you bring up a number of good points of like how it benefits sort of, um, you mentioned, you know, makes it makes it more sort of equitable for people to uh, publish and uh, get their work out there, get it seen um, for, you know, because there's the financial restrictions, which, yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize, like if you're coming from outside of academia, which, you know, a number of people that listens to this show I know do, um, that, yeah, it's like if I want to publish my paper in a journal and get it out there so that I can say, you know, like, hey, I did this work, it's it's approved by science, you yeah. know, yeah, 9,000 euros you're talking, you know, for the top ones. And it's, yep. it's yeah, I think it's like the, the shortest I've seen is like 2,000. But you also bring up these really good points um, for the early career people, because I think that's another thing that maybe it's starting to, to trickle out into other mainstream areas, this idea of, you know, how science is done and how really like postdocs and sort of grad students are like this, <laughs> this labor force that is doing so much of these like experiments and they're all like fighting for these uh, positions and yep. grants, you know, and jobs that there's not a lot there. Um, so it's like you mentioned before, very competitive. Yeah. Um, but like this process of like how long it takes and, and what if you're, you know, I've heard so many horror stories of grad students where they want to publish something, but yeah, like it takes forever to go through the peer review process or the supervisor is dragging their feet or yeah. all of these things. So it, there's it, a lot of benefit I see for, yeah, within the field. Continue, it, yeah. In my experience, I mean, everything takes us twice as long as you think it will take. Yeah, <laughs> in, in, in science, everything takes twice as long, and and you know, in a, someone in a three-year contract, you really need to start applying or at least put your job search hat on within your last year of mm -hmm. um, of of your postdoc. I mean, it's it's unrealistic to think that 
unless you're really connected, if you're lucky, you know, you might come from the right lab that has the right connections. But I think for a lot of people, it does take a long time to go from that that one position to secure the next. Um, mm-hmm. I recently secured uh, an independent fellowship, which is allowing me to start my own group at Sanger. And um, I submitted the fellowship application in May and I found out that I was successful the following April. Yeah. I mean, that's... that's 10, 11 months. Um, and I could have, <laughs> I could have found your out. life around that. Yeah. I mean, if I hadn't have got that, then I would be now back in Australia because I would have had to move home. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't have time to, between the end of my previous contract, which was, was it seven to last year, um, to, to apply for another round of that funding. So mm-hmm. you've got to have backup plans. And as I said, the, the, the key thing is that everything takes time. And what pre-printing does is is it allows you to um, make your work visible when you think it's ready to be visible. Mm-hmm. I think the other the other there's a, you know I can I can talk about a bunch of different aspects of of why yeah. there's benefits here, but another thing is that it puts a timestamp on when you've uh, when you're ready to show the world something. And again, in this really competitive. Um, you know, sector, if you like, you know, science mm-hmm. is competitive to a degree. Um, we're all chasing a limited pot of money. Um, there are limited jobs, as you say. Um, preprinting can allow you to say, hey, well, this is when it's ready. And and this is the date that, um, date that I've staked my claim on this. And a, a good example perhaps is the CRISPR battle um mm-hmm. between um university of berkeley and and the broad institute and that there was some overlap in the time at which papers were submitted and papers were accepted if if two papers are submitted to different journals on the same thing at the same time the time at which they appear in publication could be vastly different and one right. might even be earlier but come out later and so mm-hmm. the preprinting does allow you to sort of stake your claim a little bit. Now that could be that could be used in the wrong way, in that you could yeah. have an idea and say, "This is a fantastic idea. I'm going to write a preprint and, and not show any evidence," uh, and therefore you'd be staking your claim before before you uh, had anything to back it up with. And in in that sense, you could see it as like, um, you know, because obviously the 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 critique or whatever will be well it's still going to it's people will still see it and judge it on the value of its work but that's unfortunately it. if you're the first one out there and you get it out there maybe that is what people remember rather than oh yeah but actually it turned out that the the work wasn't really that good and then we had to like change it or something like that you know it's almost like the when newspapers make corrections right like everybody remembers the headline and nobody remembers the the correction that comes two weeks later uh, yeah, in the next edition or something. Yeah, that 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 that's very true. I mean, um, there is a big thing about being the first, being the biggest. Um, that has the impact. Um, part part of one of the problems where with scientific publishing is that um, we're in some ways, I think, force is the wrong word, but we're we're naturally encouraged to try and make our research as 
uh, biggest and brightest and 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 spun in such a way that we've done something amazing. You know, I think I think my work is amazing. And it's very easy to be brought back down to earth when you go to a conference, and uh, there's a lot less people interested in uh, what you <laughs> what you have to say than what you think you have to say. Um, but you know, if you read um, really big publications, you know sometimes there is a lot of spin that's gone into it to make it sound um, really really big, and 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 sometimes that's what is attractive to those journals because they want to be publishing the biggest and the first and, and, and the best. Um, mm -hmm. And, and that, in that's... a lot of ways it kind of, sorry, it, it mm. kind of reminds me of, and maybe an analogy for people outside of the academic world. It's, it's, it kind of feels a lot like what, how people have conversations about media these days, you know, about like just needing to grab attention, grab headlines, yeah. grab, you know, this. So you have to like, you know, you get the flashy headline, you get this, and then you read the article, and it's like, well, that's not really what happened, you know? Yeah, that's there's exactly. a little bit of spin going on. And it's, unfortunately, yeah, science can operate in that way, too. I think in within the science community, there's a, there's a lot more sort of, maybe we'll say natural checks and balances, rigors that, that, that maybe tampen that down. So it's, it's not, I'm not trying to say science is clickbaity, you know? But there's that similar sort of pressure to sort of be first, be big, because there is, like you said, we're chase, they're chasing a, a limited amount of money. Um, big research is going to get big research dollars, which is going to allow you to keep going. It's just sort of this, you know, natural evolution of the, the, the cycle that's been created. So yeah. I, I like what you're saying about preprint as a way to help the young, the younger people sort of, yeah, get that timestamp, sort of show, like, look at... It hasn't come out, it hasn't gone through the whole process yet, but I'm comfortable showing it to you so you can judge it, you know, whether it's for a job application, grant application, whatever, or fellow scientists, right? Like it allows everybody to get eyes on it. Yeah. And so instead of like three peer reviewers, you can have hundreds. A hundred percent. Yeah. So that's all good. That's all great. That makes sense to me. And in the end, you know, I think bad science will get found out, whether yeah. it's through preprint or peer review. The question then is, you know, for the let's say the general public or something because i I was thinking about this and i was like you know preprint who who does that benefit um you know it benefits the science community like you've outlined i think journalists it benefits as well because they can take a look at it now this is one of the things that martin and i were talking about you have to understand the caveats of this hasn't gone through the rigorous peer review process so you need to sort of report that responsibly yeah. i think people are sort of learning that but then it's like there's still this bridge to the sort of, let's say, general public, right? They're still relying on someone to interpret that stuff yeah. because I don't think the general public is going to preprints, right? And like looking this, this stuff. I mean, maybe some people are now in the, in the age of Corona because there's just like everybody wants information on, you know, how to be safe and what's yeah. going on and all that stuff. But that's, I think, where, you know, to Martin's point, there's, you know, potentially a danger there um with the bad science getting out and stuff and i'm just wondering what your take then is on because you did mention sort of at the beginning that there is a benefit to the public so i would like to to hear what your your thoughts are on that because sure there's to me there's still a disconnect between you know preprint and and we'll say the general public yeah i i mean I, this is this might be an unpopular opinion but it's my opinion is that science <laughs> but 
So, you know, like everyone's opinion, everyone has one. But um, my opinion is that Science Journal, you know, peer-reviewed or pre-printed um, manuscripts are not meant for the general public. Right? Mm-hmm. And this this is maybe a big statement, but in reality, they've, a, a, a published journal article or a preprint is written for other scientists. Okay, mm-hmm. it's you. The language that's used, the technical detail that's used, assumes uh, some level of technical training. It's if if it was if it was written for the general public, they would be written very very differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, that's I think an important thing to say is that they're not written f- for anyone else. And if anyone else reads them, they're, they're, there's a good chance. That there's going to be some degree of miscommunication. Mm-hmm. So, you know, accessing, um, making this accessible to the general public is the responsibility of things like media journalists um, in in communicating that correctly. And, you know, as I said, I'm a big advocate of open and transparent science. Part of that open and transparency. Is is saying when something has been peer reviewed, when it hasn't. I think that is getting um, easier to interpret in in journal uh, media, journalist media type forums. Um, you know, it, it often comes with a with a caveat of not peer reviewed. Does, does the general public understand what that means? I'm not sure. I guess it's part of the challenge of this ongoing. Uh, science communication um, fight that you've you're cl- you're clearly fighting the good fight here, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's it, it's it's very difficult. I think we we need to make sure that we're not um, we're not spinning our science too hard, so that when someone else reads it, they don't spin it even further and make it um, something that it's not. And that's where that's sometimes where the problems lie. Is mm-hmm. it sort of this Chinese whispers of what something actually means when in a in a in a scientific paper it it it, it may be actually quite defined. It might be a cure for diabetes in a cell line or in a mouse or you know mm-hmm. something that you know has a long way to go to being translatable into humans, but it's very important that all of the details are understood. I was talking to someone the other day about understanding journals, and I really don't think uh, until you're probably somewhere in your PhD, okay, so this is the level of learning that's involved, of, of how to really read and understand a paper, um, a, a published journal article. It, it takes a lot, you know, you, you sometimes, you know, Almost always, not all of the details are there, so you've got to kind of work out how to read this holy document. That, um, that you know, it's not it's not always clear what's being done or why something is being done. Some are better than others. You know, some of the statistics are poor. Sometimes it's really just complicated, and the person, the author, hasn't written it very well. But I, I really think that it takes a lot of training and a lot, reading a lot of papers to actually become quite competent at writing, reading a paper. And even mm-hmm. 
having written some papers is probably a good learning curve too. Um, yeah, I mean, I personally, I, I, I kind of agree with your point that like journal articles, like scientific journal articles, primary source stuff isn't really meant to be, you know, widely consumed. I mean, if you want to think about, you know, the the goal of that paper really is so that other scientists can read your work, know what you did, replicate it, mm -hmm. and build on it, right? Build like on that's it. The, that's the goal of that document, yeah. right, is to provide a recipe, a manual, so that someone in the same lab, a similar lab as you, with the similar materials can, you know, follow that recipe yeah. and see what they come up with, you know, make the slight change, see what they come up with, build on it, that kind of thing. So for 100%, like if you just look at like what the the goal of the document is, the goal of the document isn't to get, you know, the general public excited about this research, right? Like yeah. that's, that's the, the next level of it. Now, I mean, I think you could probably maybe you'd agree, maybe you wouldn't, that there's still a lot of work that can be done in terms of like how jargony and how, you know, technical these manuscripts are. There could be some work there to help, you know, even just, you know, some cross-pollination between fields, right? Like between, so that you get that sort of, you know, someone from a, like a sort of a, a distant, but still kind of related field might be able to find something in your work that, you know, makes this great cross-disciplinary discovery. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. It's not really meant for the for the public. So then, you know, the, getting back to the preprint, it's great then for the science communicators, the people that want to take that stuff, whose job it is to take that stuff and bring it out. Yeah. Um, but it's just, yeah, there's always this challenge of, you know, what do the understanding of the sort of nuts and bolts of it, right? I did a, a, the last podcast I just did, I was speaking with a science journalist, a fellow science journalist, and she said, you know, it's important to remember that science isn't a thing, it's a process. Yeah. Right. That's and I'm wondering how much of that understanding gets out there to people. You know, I think, you know, if you're trying to, the pandemic has highlighted so many, I think, failures in communication um, where, you know, things change yeah. and you have to like now we have to change course or we have new information or something and that really throws people for a loop and you know politics doesn't help you know all that kind of stuff so um do you have a stance on like science you're starting your own lab do you have a stance on science communication as to like we're sort of encouraging this as members of our lab it's been another conversation that's happened on these podcasts is you know academics don't get usually compensation or yep. credit for for doing that work, but where do you feel that, you know, the role of the academic is in that sense? And, you know, if you do engage in science communication, I mean, you're doing it right now, but what sorts of things have you found useful or would you try to target that kind of thing? I, I, I broadly think it's really important. So I, I have a huge amount of respect for, for what you're doing and, and, and other people that spend their time, um, often not paid, um, to try and, um, get people in, you know, get the layperson to understand what they're doing. I think um, it's always been a two-way conversation or a, a good science communication is a two-way conversation in that you can hopefully convey a little bit of, about your passion, about what you do and why you do it. Um, but also it can be a great way of, of learning about how other people 
perhaps not in your field or perhaps your mum or your dad or <laughs> grandma, um, you know, how they might understand what you do when, when a lot of the times you live in a little silo working on something kind of complicated that, you know, maybe lots of people don't understand. You know, hopefully we all have a, you know, as scientists, we have a, a greater goal of what we want to achieve with our science. I think it, it's much easier to sell you and your work and, you know, to get grants when you have that bigger vision about where you think your science fits in the world. Um, because ultimately we don't work in silos. We work um, as part of this process and that if we're lucky that we'll, we'll develop something, a paper or an idea or a methodology that forms one little building block in this great big world that is, is science. And if, you know, hopefully, if you're lucky, you'll get a couple of those that, that stand the test of time. But um, we, we don't know that. We, you know, things are changing really rapidly all the time. And, um, you know, our sometimes our experiments are, you know, really complex things that we try and reduce down into something really simple. And it could be the fact that we've just simply missed a, a, a key variable that for some reason we just didn't appreciate that was important at the time. Mm -hmm. So that can, that can be really difficult. So I, I, I've been um, active in some ways with science communication. I, I, I wouldn't say that I've done a lot, um, not for a lack of want, but um, one thing that I'm really passionate about uh, and it feeds into my work in, in some ways is interacting with people in low and middle income countries, um, particularly around the development of skills and training to do with genomics and bioinformatics. And um, since joining the Sanger in 2015, I think every year I've been on at least one or more than one um, course that we run, um, uh, it's essentially run for the um, communicating science and um, engagement uh, platform that we have at, at Sanger to take... Um, take bioinformatics training from Sanger and, and, and deliver that in, in different parts of the world to people that really just don't have the access um, to that, that sort of training materials. And um, these are all bioinformatic courses that I've been on. And so we're, we're teaching a bit of computer coding. Uh, and there's also, you know, a bit of context about, you know, talking about parasites or um, other pathogens. And um, these are targeted at uh, trainees, people that are either, for example, for, uh, in their postgraduate degrees, masters or PhD students or early career researchers who are actively working with these sorts of data sets but perhaps don't have the skills or aren't in the environment that allows them to do these sorts of things really effectively. And um, mm -hmm. I... I, I get a lot of um, satisfaction from this from talking to people training these people you know um, you always walk away um, with everyone wanting to collaborate with you <laughs> which is you know not a bad is, thing which is not a bad thing but um, you know I think I think that's that's one way we've done that I've, as I said I've been on courses every year and uh, we're running a virtual course um, in May in Asia well, so it, we were meant to go to Thailand um, 
and there was another one that we were meant to go to Vietnam to run. So these are week-long courses. But we've been to um, Uruguay, South Africa, uh, Ghana. Um, we've been to Asia before. A range of different places. That's um, that's a really um, great. I mean, it's a great initiative. Uh, but it's an a angle of science communication that you know I to be honest, never even really thought about, but it's, that's, that's another aspect of this broad term science communication. We always think of it. I always think of it as, you know, media, you have science journalism, you know, podcasts, that kind of thing. But actually, you know, there's a number of different audiences that need this information. And yep. you've highlighted a number of times in this conversation already that low and middle income countries don't necessarily, they're kind of, they're kind of being shut out a little bit for factors that don't really, um, that don't involve the actual work, right? Yeah. Like it's access to some of the materials, some of the knowledge, some of the publication instruments, that kind of thing. Yeah. So that's a really, yeah, that's a really great um, point, I think, to realize that there's that, that's, that's another angle of, of science communication. Um, maybe now we can jump then to the work that you actually do because you kind of you know, touched, you threw out a couple terms there, genomics and bioinformatics, which... Yeah. I think people, you know, that follow science somewhat will will hear will have heard those terms, maybe understand what they are, but I think we could we could do a little explanation on that because I think there's probably another group of people that have just been introduced to genomics and bioinformatics because of the pandemic. Yeah. And, you know, they're hearing these terms, you know, variants and sequencing and, and all of this stuff. Um, and that's sort of your wheelhouse. Now, yes, you work with parasites, maybe not so much viruses. I, I, I don't know. Maybe you have some experience with viruses. But I think broadly, you know, the methods are the same. Yeah. The, the, the principle behind it is the same. We're all based on DNA and RNA and, and these things. So maybe you could kind of give us the sort of broad strokes like genomics as a field, what it is, what it can teach us about whatever organism we're looking at, and then you know, we can kind of put that in context of some of the coronavirus stuff. And then we can also, you know, your specific work with parasites, because from, you know, I'm pretty sure I don't want to jump on your work too much, but um, parasite uh, drug resistance is a big part of, of what you do. And I think that's an important topic as well. But yeah. let's start broad. Okay. So uh, for a really long time now, um, I've been fascinated by genetic variation so this is um and you i completely agree it's variants and genomics and sequencing is all over the over the news and i get really excited to see it because uh you know you don't see you don't see these sorts of words often often used in mainstream media but i, I i'm fascinated by how we're all different how we're you know one species but we're all we all look very different and and a very common you know thread for all life is that we're we uh we have dna and dna is a little bit you know one analogy is a little bit like an instruction manual for for how to to build an organism and the the variation in that in that dna is very very small changes that differ between different individuals within a species create all this 
phenotypic variation. So phenotypic is different from genotypic. Genotypic is those changes in the DNA. Phenotypic is what we see. So in people, you know, we have different color hair, hair color, and eye eyes. color. Yep, yeah, exactly. And so there's an amazing, uh, you know, an amazing diversity of genetic variation within a species. And, and that's what creates all this phenotypic variation. And obviously it's in, in the news at the moment because we're talking about variants uh, in the SARS-CoV-2 genome that, that might be um, more or less transmissible, um, pathogenic, these sorts of things. No, I, I do not work on viruses at all. But you're right, a lot of the same principles apply in that understanding what these variants do um, can can really tell us a lot about how an organism changes over time, how they acquire these variants, and what where do these variants lie in their genome. So the genome is all of the DNA that's within a, a cell or a, a tissue or an organism. So how do, how do these variants contribute to this variability? And, and what does an organism do with it? And, and how does that spread or how does that move through time and space? And, that, and that's kind of what I'm interested in. And I, I work on parasitic worms, so called helminths. Uh, and these infect humans and animals, um, also infects plants. And this, they have an amazing diversity of phenotypic variability. They infect all different types of hosts. Um, they infect them in different ways they are able to live in different tissues and have really complex life cycles that might involve intermediate hosts where to allow transmission from one human to the next for example it might be have to be transmitted by a black fly or a mosquito and and they've got to be able to um, adapt and and uh, and fend off all of these defense systems between hosts and and a lot of this is through evolution and evolution acts on this variation to uh, enable um, filling of a of a, a niche if you like that that other organisms don't fill so yeah understanding this variation is is quite fascinating and, and parasitic worms are a particular variable they're really highly variable mm-hmm mm-hmm so you know, like we, I think people understand that we now have this ability to sort of get the the A's, the T's, the G's, the C's from the from the, from a cell, from an organism. Yeah. So get those letters that we see that are associated with the DNA code. Yeah. But then, so that's you know one aspect of it is the technology, and our technology has advanced quite greatly in this area. So we can get large amounts of raw data of just sort of the letters that make up this genetic code. Yeah. But then the next step, you know, we talk about bio, bioinformatics and, and, you know, the genomic stuff is understanding, well, what does that mean? So we have this, it, it shows us the variation that, you know, at this, you know, organism A, you know, individual A has, you know, A, T, G, C here, and the next one has A, T, G, G. You know, yeah. like, what does that, how does that then translate to, what you said, you know, a phenotypic difference. And that's, I think, where it's like it gets a little 
we have a lot to learn in terms of, okay, so the letters are different. That means the gene is slightly different. But there's also things like gene location, you know, with you know what genes are next to each other, and that can influence how they're expressed, and then what the traits of an organism is. So really, like genomics, bioinformatics, you guys are digging into this, not just you know physical variation in the actual base pairs of the DNA, but there's all of this other stuff. Yep. And I think that's really fascinating. And maybe you know people don't grasp like just how much there is to understand there. So where do you go? How do you go about like you know, going from this raw data output, ATGC, yep. to then sort of building this map or this picture of a genome and how it interacts. And, you know, even to some level, I'm assuming, you know, once you understand that, you can understand, maybe make some predictions about how it might evolve yep. in terms of different, in the face of different pressures. Yep. No, that's it's a really good good question. So, I mean, uh, to start with, yeah, what what we're trying to do is, is is find the differences among the A's, T's, G's, and C's that are encoded in your DNA, and we do that nowadays with something called high throughput sequencing. And so, sequencing is literally taking the DNA, chopping it up into little pieces, and we have these machines called a sequencer. That that there's a few different flavors, but the perhaps the the main workhorse. Um, uh, the Illumina sequences, Illumina is a brand um, that is a bit like a big fluorescent microscope um, that reads these individual bases, which are, uh, are labeled with a fluorescent probe. And it does this at scale. It can literally do millions to billions uh, of short little sequences at one time. Uh, and that's a real contrast, um, even 10 years or, or 20 years ago where this was a much, much slower, much less throughput um, uh, process. And so what you're left with after your, your high throughput sequencing run is finished is millions or perhaps billions of little jigsaw puzzle pieces that you need to try and make some sense of. And these jigsaw puzzle pieces are often in maybe 100 letters long, so 100 A's, T's, G's and C's. 100 or maybe 200. So they're quite short. And uh, a genome is uh, much, much bigger than this. A genome would be in the size, so a typical worm genome might be 100 million or a few hundred million letters. A human genome is a bit over 3 billion letters. Okay, and so this is a really big space. This is not something that you can manually, uh, by eye, scroll through very easily. So what we do is we use um, computational approaches, bioinformatics, to basically train computers to 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 find uh, where these where these short reads go. So one of the the common, if you've got a reference genome, so this is a genome that someone else has. Um, sequenced and assembled. Um, what you might do is try and map your short reads against this genome and look for where uh, where in the genome your reads from your sample differ from the reference genome. And then we, we call these polymorphisms or, or variants. So there's the variant term again. And these variants might be a single nucleotide variant, so just one A, T, G, and C in a given period, given space be different. 
and uh, and and what we do is we 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 train uh, computers to find find those, but it could be much more complex. It could be um, not a single nucleotide variant, uh, but it might be an indel, so an insertion or a deletion. These also could be a single nucleotide, but they can also be much bigger, and um, and there can also be other types of variations, such as copy number differences. And so often what we're doing is we're comparing our sample to this reference genome and asking what's different about it. Mm -hmm. um, if we're lucky, we know where all the genes are. So there's some bioinformatics done to try and find the genes. Often um, a genome... Um, it's, it's worth thinking about a genome, and people don't appreciate this, is a hypothesis about what what actually looks like in an organism. In reality, it's different. It's, mm -hmm. all, it's almost always wrong um, to some <laughs> degree. Um, it, it can be very fragmented. So in our, in our cells, we have our DNA that's wound up in chromatin, and that chromatin is arranged into chromosomes. These are really condensed structures um, that takes really long pieces of DNA um, that are much, much bigger than your cell in terms of if you, if you unraveled them all um, mm -hmm. and condensed it to, to a point at which it could be packaged within this tiny cell. And what the aim of uh, one, one aspect of genomics, which is assembly, making it a genome, is to try and recreate that structure um, bioinformatically. But for the most part, that's very, very difficult to do. It's very easy to sequence a genome. It's very difficult to assemble a genome into a representative chromosomal state. It's getting it's getting easier to do that. The technologies are really um, new technologies in the last five years or so have really changed the rate at which we can generate those better assemblies. But again, they're still a hypothesis. They're still the best we can do, and over time, we'll get better at doing those. So we're often it's, it's oh sorry um I was just gonna say this is kind of a sh like a maybe a shout back to you know the the benefit of of preprint because a lot of this work as you're saying everyone has to kind of compare their 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 work right like to yeah. get like okay we've all sequenced this worm this species you know what did what did you guys find how does that look in comparison to ours yeah. not just to sort of find the differences but also to to begin to to piece together this larger you know which piece goes where yeah where does it start where does it end that kind of thing so you need all of these people kind of working together on that um just to jump in no definitely and 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 i guess part of my passion for open research really comes down to the use of genomes for, for when i started doing genomics and so this was back in australia i was working on um a, a filarial parasite, so a parasite of humans called Oncocerca volvulus, and um, we were trying to identify genes that might be associated with a suboptimal drug response. So it looked like in some parts of Africa it wasn't responding to the, the uh, drugs that are used to treat it so well, and so we, we, we were trying to do a genomics approach to find this. And our starting material um, not the parasites we were using, but our genomic reference came from the Wellcome Sanger Institute um, that was made available to the public before publication. And so my research 
immediately benefited from the work that they had done and released without without really restriction um mm-hmm. and we we wouldn't have made um nearly as much progress without that simple release of data before it was published it's not peer reviewed i i had to use it responsibly and understand that there was caveats in the use of it it was still in lots of pieces but over time it actually improved and i redid my analyses and um and, and made it better but fundamentally it was the open access sharing of genomic data that allowed me to do my research well before i had any affiliation with sanger and mm-hmm. in fact mm-hmm. um all of our data that we generate now is released um publicly all of our sequencing data that we generate on our high throughput sequencing machines is released um to the public uh usually within a few months of it being generated uh that doesn't mean that everyone would be able to use it and uh, in the same way that we would use it, given that we generated the data. But um, with one of the, the the species that I've worked on, perhaps the most in recent years, a uh, a nematode called Homonchus contortus, which is um, the barber's pole worm that infects sheep and other ruminants, we we submitted our genome assembly and all of the genome annotations. Um, to be made publicly available before that paper was published because really the 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 benefit is to to the community is not the publication at all i mean the publication is my interpretation of what the data says and why i think it is interesting and and we've you know identified some um you know novel aspects of the parasite biology but really i think my biggest contribution in fact, is simply just releasing all the data so that people can use it. Mm-hmm. And already, uh, we, you know, we, we published that paper at the end of um, 2020, and already it's been cited numbers of, you know, lots of times because people are using those data sets before the publication was available. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is where I think, you know, um, preprint is especially good, you know, yeah. Because genomics is such a collaborative thing, and again, you know, to, to put it in the context of the pandemic, coronavirus, you know, there's like a, a real urgency to to understand, you know, what what do changes in the coronavirus genome mean, yeah. and what is that going to mean for its ability to infect, you know, transmit that kind of thing, be more deadly, that all that yeah. stuff. So it's really it's it kind of feels like it's one of those fields that sort of really needs to be uh super open like for the sake of the research itself i i completely agree i mean i think had all of the results been hidden behind journals then uh, the response would have been a lot slower in terms of the genomic epidemiological response Mm -hmm. um but i think even too like we're, we're seeing the uh the the value of this technology you know it like it's it's finally kind of getting its sort of you know, big moment on the stage. I mean, not to not to like cheer the pandemic or anything like that, but this genomics has been building, this field has been building for like, you know, the last 10, 20 years. Yeah. And it's really getting to a point now, I feel, where it's like, if we can very, you know, grasp, you know, what, what, what genomic changes mean, like when a gene changes, 
what is that going to mean for the, the, as you said, the phenotype of the organism? How can we, in some, you know, people always say, oh, we're going to play God and whatever. But if you can understand how this process works, how the, what environmental factors will lead to, you know, a response, you know, the genome evolving in one way or another, this is really a big frontier, uh, I think, for a lot of the issues that we face in terms of, you know, uh, drug resistance, um, pandemics, even conservation and and climate change. Some people would disagree with this, but I'm kind of of the whole of the mindset that like the cat's out of the bag. We yep. change our environment all the time. So now we're going to have to look at making, you know, maybe directing evolution a little bit in terms of allowing us to deal with the changes that we've made. Yep. Um, so to me, genomics is is really kind of the next big sort of you know scientific frontier and if you look at the other fields you know physics people say oh physics is kind of stagnated you know we've been working on einstein stuff forever and nothing really new has come out of it this area of biology and understanding the genome and how to use it and what what does it mean for the things that we can do or the diseases that we can cure or that kind of thing to me this is like really one of the fresh new exciting very active fields and the pandemic is kind of just highlighting that. Yeah, I, I completely, I, I you know, I completely agree with you. Um, I I think it's really exciting that, um, and I and I'm excited to see what the follow-on effects will be, of the fact that people are talking about lay people are talking about variants and genomes, mm-hmm. and I, I think that you know not not everyone gets it, which is perfectly fine, um, but the fact that is is part of the discussion, I think it's been really great, and I think. This and you know um, Ebola outbreaks, um, you know, th- th- there's this growing, um, growing trend towards fast genomic epidemiology that is really being useful, and I think um, it's been u- it you know it's, <laughs> genomics has been around for a while and and we've been using it for a while in different things, human medicine, all, all sorts of different. Uh, all sorts of different uses for genomics, but perhaps this is one one event that has captured people and, and has perhaps um, got people to understand a little bit more about it. It's being used to track um, malaria really quite effectively. It's been used to track uh, other disease outbreaks like cholera. Um, it's being used uh, to uh, track um antimicrobial resistance in in hospital settings it's get it is used very very effectively on some of our most important pathogens but this um this covid uh sequencing is is really shown that how well it can be used at scale Mm -hmm. and 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 all of it is because of open open data sharing really right yeah exactly um internationally and, Mm -hmm. and all of that stuff yeah um Maybe we can try and unpack that a little bit, this sort of idea of, you know, genomic epidemiology. Epidemiology broadly is trying to understand, you know, how a disease is moving through a population, why is it making people sick, and then, you know, using that information to sort of, you know, stop the outbreak, right? So what specifically, like, you know, from my understanding of it, genomics just give us, rather than having to look at the outward symptoms of a person, okay, this person's coughing, they were in a room with this person, 
so we kind of assume that they got it from them that yeah. that you know this contact tracing another idea that people are probably now familiar with when maybe they hadn't been before but if we you know if we can take samples from each patient that has gotten sick with SARS or malaria or something like that we can then look at the genomes of those two you know the virus or the or the parasite infecting these two different individuals and start to maybe say answer some of those questions you know get a direction maybe of like it 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 transmitted from one person to the next or it's changing in this way and so how do you kind of you know, what would be the clues, I guess, that you would look for to, to, to sort of map that, that those questions? Sure. No, it's a, it's a really good question. So um, really what, what we're looking for are these variants. And uh, organisms um, over time will accumulate variants. In, in us humans, we inherited some DNA from our mothers and some DNA from our fathers. And that's why we look a little bit like them, but also we look a little bit different. Um, part of those differences is we would have accumulated de novo variants, new variants that are not present in either our mother or our father, and that they'll also be different from our siblings as well. And so what, what the genomic epidemiology is trying to do is look at what variants uh, are shared between um, different samples, if you like. And um, we know that some parts of the genome are more likely to uh, change than others. In effect, mutation is a random process um, to a degree, but um, evolution, the selection of those variants, um, can change their frequency. And so what we, what we try and do is understand what's the likelihood of, of seeing those two, two variants between two different individuals. Often there might be more variants and individuals that are, are very closely related. For example, um, if you have a transmission event from one person to the next of the virus, you would expect that then those two uh, those two groups of viruses that you sample are going to be very closely related. So over mm -hmm. time, we know that um, mutations accumulate at a particular pace. Um, a mutation rate, if you like, and that tends to be fairly consistent. It can change, but uh, it tends to be fairly consistent. So what we can use is that mutation rate over time, as well as sort of the, the spatial sampling, where uh, where samples are collected from, and, and try and understand um, what are the relationships, what are the genetic relationships. So it's a little bit mm -hmm. like making a family tree if you like, right. uh, of viruses. And now there's over a million uh, SARS-CoV-2 viral sequences um, available to make in this family tree. Right. So so you have just to kind of like, I'm just trying to think of all you know the stuff you said, and you, you said virus, DNA, whatever organism, it's going to mutate at a certain rate. So just even if it's over time, you have you know, a virus starting at this point, you can kind of estimate, you know, at a week later or a month later, we expect X number of differences between this genome and this genome because it's replicating all yeah. the time, right? Yeah. So in that sense, you could say, okay, we, we sampled virus from this person in this city at this date, yeah. and then another person, uh, you know, on another side of the city or in another city, 
at another date and then look use that kind of time frame of how many mutations you would expect to see to sort of say oh there's a there's a linear pattern here with yep. geography and the mutation accumulation and stuff that says well it looks like you know person a from this city probably brought the virus to this city uh, and it spread from there and then beyond that you can then look at oh well there is some weird difference there's there's a difference that we wouldn't expect to see just with this sort of stable rate of mutation and that's maybe where you could be like it's evolution has selected for this particular uh change and it's you know it's kind of taking off and this is where we get the variants that kind of thing is that that, 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 that that's that's effectively how it works i mean uh, you know there was an estimation of i think something like 1300 introductions into the uk uh in the early stages of the pandemic in between when there was talk of shutting 1300. down 1300 yeah uh and and these would have formed clusters and and some of those clusters would have made sense in terms of pinpointing other little hot spots that had been appearing in in europe and other parts of the world and so, so you could say this cluster in the, that's arrived in the UK looks identical or next to identical to say a cluster from Italy, yep. and then you're like, okay, likely, and that's where then you look at the travel records and everything. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. So it, it's 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 you know it's one piece of information that does need to be pieced together with other parts of information, but that's how it's that's how it has been used. It does get much more difficult when you know in uh, you know really high levels of transmission and, and the, the pandemic these sorts of things start to not work as well but mm -hmm. you know they were very effective for example of of identifying the british variant um b117 i think it's called um mm -hmm. in and looking at the rates at which that that started to take off and it was through the genomics that identified the, that that particular variant and the increase at which the, those variants were being transmitted Mm-hmm. Now it's so hard you to get this like yep, sorry, continue. No, I was just gonna say hard to know how a variant will behave, but essentially what what will happen is that a variant will increase in frequency if there's some degree of fitness increase, and that might be transmissibility or uh something that allows it to spread quicker and that, that will change mm -hmm. the rate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you have this clue that, okay, this new cluster of, of sequences of virus that we're sampling from a bunch of different people in an area, it looks different. So just on the surface, we can say, okay, there's some sort of change and we can try and map that to its next closest relative to get a, a picture of where it's being spread to. But then you can also look at where in the genome it's different yeah and how that might affect its yeah its ability to infect so for example again everyone's heard about the spike protein by yep. now right this this protein that the virus uses to latch onto cells and get in so if you started to see um mutations in that area like this one cluster all has this specific change uh in the spike protein then that gives you a clue oh well this might have something to do with you know, its ability to transmit or its ability to survive in the cells, that kind of thing. So this is another angle that you then, you know, it's not just mapping the spread and sort of tracing it and finding it and, and chasing it around the world, but then you get, you know, clues as to function, like what it's going to do. Yeah, exactly. And, and I guess it gives you, it allows you to build new hypotheses about what it might be doing. It's very difficult to say anything conclusively until you test that 
specifically mm -hmm. at a lab with a specific experiment that's designed to test that specific variant under certain conditions. Right, right. But, you know, obviously spike protein variants are a major concern, um, particularly around the effectiveness of vaccines and such. Right. And so then with your work specifically, uh, you're looking at variations in genes in the worms that respond to the drugs that we use to kill these these worms or yep. keep them in, into control and in that sense you can look for okay how is the because i mean drug resistance is this constant battle between we come up with a drug that kills you know a, a worm you know in sheep and then x number of those worms survive because they have a slight you know genetic mutation that allows them to survive and then the next generation is filled with with that type of worm that that's slightly changed and over time it becomes this arms race right that's the, the the general principle so you are looking at sequences of worms from all over and trying to find these uh these sort of little differences that are allowing the worms to better survive the drug is that correct yeah i mean that that's that's a that's a pretty good overview of what what we do so <laughs> um yeah i i i'm interested in drug resistance among other other things uh, in terms of variation but dr drug resistance is a really uh, important aspect of control of of these um, these parasites so it's it's a much bigger problem in the veterinary fields particularly in our livestock industries but um, it's also a growing concern in in uh, the control of uh, human infective parasites in that it seems like constant use of drugs is forcing the parasites to evolve um, to be less responsive to those drug treatments. Mm -hmm. And so we, we take a couple of approaches. One is to sample widely, and we've done some um, global studies of, of parasitic variation to try and understand and characterize all of this variation within a species. And that tells us that they're extremely variable and and um, one of one of the problems with that is that which we're, we're trying to find a, a needle in a haystack if you like in that we're trying to find you know as probably will be a single base change so a single ATGC change in about 300 million A's T's G's and C's right and because they're really genetically variable throughout the world and even on a single farm, if you like, if we're talking about our sheep parasites, they're so genetically variable that understanding what that single causative you know, variation, that drug-resistant variation, understanding what that is and what that looks like in a, in a vast sea of all this other variation is really difficult. So we um, use a, an experimental system um, in sheeps where we can um, do what's called a genetic cross. We take resistant parasites and we take susceptible parasites and we surgically implant them into um, the abomasum of the sheep where the, the parasites live. That forces them to, to mate. And then the progeny that we get, you know, the, the little baby worms that, that come out in the feces are a mixture of those two um, parental strains. And what that does is it kind of controls for all of that variation that that really confounds these studies of drug resistance. Uh, 
and then becomes much less of a problem. And then we do some drug selection experiments where we treat with and without drug or we treat before and after treatment. And then we use genomics to compare that before and after treatment or between different drugs. And right. it's been a really powerful way of um, mapping, uh, finding out where in the genome these genes that, are, that cause drug resistance lie. And uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's worked really, really quite effectively. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting approach, and I it was I wasn't involved in that work when I was uh, working with uh, John Gilliard, uh, my PhD supervisor. I was kind of off on my own doing another project, but it always it's it sounds kind of complicated, you know, to to sort of this this taking susceptible and uh, resistant parasites and putting them together, you know, having them mate. But I guess the simplest way to think about it is like. And you correct me if I'm wrong. Is like um, you know they you you would assume there's there's high levels of variation as you said between these worms, right? And we don't some of that leads to meaningful changes. Some of it doesn't. It's just the way that they are, right? So by crossing them, by having them breed the susceptible, the ones that can can be killed by drugs and the ones that are resistant to drugs, you're kind of like canceling out all of that variation. So that the things that's left would be what is uh, important to to the to the, to being able to to resist the drug. And then when you you know give them drugs, and you know the ones that die obviously were susceptible. The ones that survive are resistant. You're left then with this sort of you can kind of look at well the background, all that background noise kind of gets canceled out. And so then you're the thing that you want to see, the trait that you want to see, you can really sort of hone in on the differences. That, that's exactly right. I mean, it's just it's it's taking two bags of different color marbles, throwing them all together, mixing them up, and and uh, what happens through sexual reproduction, which is you know why why we have sex really is to generate mm -hmm. new combinations of genetic variation in our progeny. And by mating the different strains, we're basically mixing up all of their um, their genetic variation so that uh, rather than being separated by strains, now they're all, all together. And yeah, when, when we treat them, uh, only the resistance one survives. And what's important is that all of those resistance worms will share uh, a, a very small part of their genome They'll share lots of their mm -hmm. genome, but they'll all be very consistently sharing a very small part of their genome that contains the resistant um, variants, if you like. And yeah, so, the, what we the, can... the gene that allows them to survive drug, it'll be very like it'll it, kind of stick out in this sea of variation as a, exactly as a, as a region that's like almost identical in all of these guys. Ex that's exactly right. It will be it will mm. be almost ex identical, and it will look very much like the resistant parent at that particular position. Whereas the right. rest of the genome um, won't. It will it will just look like a mix of the two. So we can use mm -hmm. these bioinformatic mm -hmm. approaches to compare pre and post treatment, or uh, the susceptible versus the the genetic cross mm -hmm. uh, treated individuals, uh, and it's it's been very very effective. I think one of the really interesting things. Uh, is that we've been identifying a number of known drug resistance genes, so it, it uh, kind of validates our approach. But we've also um, been able to exclude a number of drug resistance genes in the literature because mm. they 
just show no evidence of selection um, in these strains. Uh, but we've also been able to identify some novel things, some some that just are completely off everyone's radar, um, which is quite exciting too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, like this then gives you so that you can look at the changes. You you could look at the gene that's 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 providing this resistance. You can then, you know, understand how it does the resistance. You know, maybe how it's conferring that ability to survive the drug. I know in some situations that it it there's like a it codes for like a pump that you know maybe gets rid of the drug or it provides a blocker on the outside of the cell so that the drug can't bind and get yep. in. There's all these different things. So you get that information. You find things that you never expected to find. Yep. Um, and then you can also then in your global sampling, now you have a target to look for, right? To say, hey, resistance is growing in this area versus this area. So maybe we need to like either find new drugs. So it gives you that information too. If, if you know how it's beating your drug, you can design a drug to get around it in theory. But you also then understand, well, we need to not use as much drug in this area because otherwise we're just going to keep breeding these sort of like super worms, right? Yeah, most definitely. I think I think one of the sort of the short-term promises, I think it hasn't eventuated. I think we're, we're, we're pretty close is, is having some diagnostic tools that will allow us to, to predict what level of resistance might be on a farm or in a population uh, and then use that as, as a management tool to say what should we be treating with and whether we should be treating with the same drug or whether we should be switching to a different drug. Um, one, of, one of the issues is that there's a very few number of drugs available. And so mm-hmm. um, both in the human and veterinary settings, managing um, drug susceptibility, if you like, is really, really key um, because there's not too many options. Um, if, if all the parasites become resistant to the very few drugs that we have, um, it, it's going to be very difficult. And in some places in the world, farming, for example, has become uneconomical because of the the high levels of drug and, and subsequent drug resistance. That it's just very difficult to control these these parasites. That obviously has significant animal health um, and other economic um, uh, burdens, if you like. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that that's maybe something that you could you you know fill us in on because I think people don't realize you know we think of we we think of parasites we like people know viruses especially now they bacteria they hear about a lot you know bacterial resistance which is essentially you know people are doing the exact same thing that you're doing with worms in bacteria to yep. get to find out about bacterial resistance um, but we don't think about parasites as much unless it's like some clickbait video on YouTube of like a gross parasite or something, yeah. or unless you have dogs and you've seen them have worms or cats or something like that. But I think people don't realize just how, especially in, you know, sort of high income countries, how important these things are to, you know, livestock management. And then in low and middle income countries, it's even the problem, you know, is even worse with their livestock because they depend so much on it. They don't have the sort of same systems and wealth that we have yep. in order to sort of deal with these things. So if livestock gets sick, you know, what are you going to do? And then the also, you know, in the low and income middle countries in tropical and subtropical areas where these things tend to really thrive, it's a real, it's a, it's a human burden as well. Yep. And the parasite thing, again, just, you know, people don't really understand. It. It's not so much about them killing you. But it's them making you really sick, or your yeah. animals really sick and unproductive. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I think it, it probably hasn't gotten on uh, a higher 
priority or, or, or radar is something like malaria or other bacterial diseases because it doesn't kill a lot of people. Um, it's estimated that probably one and a half billion people worldwide have a parasitic infection of a worm. Um, and these are almost all in um, low and sometimes middle income countries, um, some of the poorest regions of the world. Um, mm -hmm. and, and often they're infected with more than one species. Um, and so they, they, they have a really high burden um, in some some regions of the world and, and they can make people quite sick, including children. I mean, it's some of these parasites, particularly uh, a group called the soil transmitter helminths, is, um, really have a big effect on um, children's development. Um, it's proposed that might have any uh, might have some impact on um, cognition and um, other developmental issues. And so, uh, yeah, it, it's really important. And and the reason, I guess, well, what one one aspect of why they're important is that they they are recognised as being something that we need to control. And they are actually targeted by some of the world's largest drug delivery campaigns, the Mass Drug Administration. A lot of these drugs are, are donated for free and, and, and delivered into, into these really poor uh, endemic communities um, to control these worms. But in, in some, some parts of the world, these drugs are not necessarily working as well as they should. But in terms of farming, effectively... All farmers, as part of their management program, treat their livestock with drugs to control um, gastrointestinal parasites, and so it's just it's just rife. And I think one of the real challenges is that there's not really a standard way of managing livestock in terms of uh, parasite control. It varies from region to region, it varies from what your you know your father or grandfather did. Um, you know, there's, there's so many different ways of controlling them and there's probably not always a great understanding of how to use drugs properly and underdosing or overdosing or, uh, or not treating enough. You know, there's all these different factors that can lead to um, the evolution of resistance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, just we can kind of start to wrap it up here, uh, but the you mentioned how parasites are so variable and it's one of those things that like i said people don't really think about much until it's like a gross video of a worm or yeah. something or you know their their pets and things like this but they're really beyond the the practical matters of um you know the the burden in low and income middle countries and you said it doesn't matter where you are your every farm deals with these worms yeah. like it's it's all over the world and they they do cost they do have a cost in terms of production and health of the animals and stuff like that. But these are such fascinating creatures that we can actually, I think, also using some of these genomic techniques. You talk about the novel findings. You find some things or you find some genes that these worms share that you're like, oh, what's that's weird. Why are they why do they all have that? Like it must be important. Right. But if you think about where these things live, how some of them live in the bloodstream, in your body, that kind of thing, and the size of them, they're not you know they can be big like they're actual you know yeah they're not small physical animals not, small. not yeah. like yeah not like microbial things mm -hmm. right so they have to develop these really sort of intimate connections with the the host and the host immune system yeah 
as to how they get around that. And actually, we can probably learn something about, you know, immune, how our own immune system works by looking at the ways in which worms sort of evade the immune system. And so there's all of these cool little things like traits that they have that using genomics and stuff, you can start to understand, oh, well, hey, like, look at that. This allows this worm to, you know, survive better here. And then you can start to be like, well, if we can, you know, CRISPR that or, you know, something like this, like it, it, it really, it shows you a lot about yourself by understanding how this thing infects you. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, there's this active research and a number of different areas and ways of, of exploiting the way worms hide from the immune system. So they, some of these worms live in our bodies for years. Um, Oncocerca volvulus, the, the, the floral worm I talked about um, that causes the disease river blindness, it's adult worms um, can live up to about 15 years in these little golf ball-sized nodules, and they, they do that really effectively, uh, hiding, suppressing the local immune system to, to trick it into not knowing that it's there. And so really understanding how these parasites are so good at, that, at, at hiding within the body could could lead to so many novel um, products that could help us in a range of different other diseases. Mm -hmm. Lots of mm -hmm. uh, lots of inflammation or asthma or uh, gut diseases. There's, there's a number of different um, ways people are trying to explore using helminth-derived products for that. Yeah. And I mean, people may have heard of like this, you know, the idea of like taking a worm to... to, to help your gastro gastrointestinal you know disorder ibd or something yep. like this you know uh, autoimmune disorders basically if yep. you have a, a a thing that suppresses the immune system like very locally yep. you know so it's it's not going to affect your whole body it's going to be sort of in this very you could see how that would be useful but then it's not great to just infect someone with a worm right like because there's, there's there's other complications that could come out of it but if you can isolate that using genomics and say, hey, this gene makes this product, which does that action, then you can take that gene, grow it in the lab, and sort of turn it into a, a drug, really. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's, you know, there's, there's lots of different sort of approaches that, that you could use to sort of get to that. But that's, a, that's, a, that's fundamentally the idea, is it better understanding of these gene products, uh, and what they do, how they interact with the host, all this sort of this sort of work could ultimately turn into turn from having to give someone a worm, which you know not everyone would be so excited about, perhaps um, swallowing worms. But uh, <laughs> some, you know, again, it, it depends whether you've been living with a debilitating illness for a, for a long yeah. time. You you would probably be very open to to that. But even better yet, if you can identify what specific molecule. Uh, is uh, important for the worm's survival, then that might be a, a, a great drug candidate for um, for doing that without the worm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And just in terms of like basic research that you don't know, you never know where it's going to go. I know, uh, you know, people might not know this, but there's, um, you know, you mentioned nematodes as a type of worm that you work with uh, and they can be parasitic, but they can also be not parasitic yep. and they just sort of live in the soil and stuff. And the nematode C. elegans is like 
it's been such a resource in terms of just understanding development. Yeah. So you look at this tiny little worm and because it's been so well sequenced and we have a really good map of its genome and stuff, people can do experiments that relate to how all organisms develop from, you know, sort of the single cell stage all the way up. How do tissues develop? How yeah. does, you know, nervous tissue differentiate from muscle tissue and stuff? So there's this, again, genomics playing such a huge role in, in you know, where we're going with medicine and, and understanding our bodies and stuff. Um, but then also these little worms, you know, that you've never, you'd never see, you'd never heard of. Yeah, it's I mean, fascinating. It's, 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 it's been such an important organism for even human studies. Um, you know, there's a huge number of genes that are shared, at least some degree of function. So there's been funda really fundamental insights into human biology through studying this tiny little worm that is literally everywhere on Earth. If you, mm -hmm. if you, if you basically stripped away all of the the land uh, and left all the nematodes behind, you would still kind of see uh, see the earth effectively, the hills yeah, and the mountains. Yeah, there'd be a blanket of nematodes. There'd be a blanket of like nematodes. Wherever just there was everywhere. soil, wherever there was water, yeah. Yeah, it, it was one of the things when I, when I got into parasitology, um, it was kind of by accident, right? Like I had... I was going to be a school teacher. I was studying. I'd always into biology. I was going to be a school teacher and then kind of realized I didn't really want to be dealing with children <laughs> all day uh, in that setting. Uh, so I was like, okay, so I'm going to go, I'm going to just chase the biology instead of the school teaching thing. Uh, and I just had a, a class where the professor was really into parasites. That's what he studied. Um, I think it was even just like, it wasn't even a parasite specific class, it was just invertebrate zoology. Yeah. And I was looking at these things and the way he was talking about it, I was like, that is just, it's incredible. I mean, they're everywhere. Parasites, it's probably one of the most successful forms of like lifestyles yeah. on the planet. Like everything has a parasite, no yeah. matter what, there's something that parasitizes it. And then, yeah, like these, you know, such intimate relationships with the coevolution. Then you get, you know, the behavior ma manipulation aspect that can happen and stuff like this. And so it's like that right there is fascinating. And to now then have the tools to sort of look at how it does that on the sort of molecular level, you know, how is it manipulating behavior of the species? How is it evading the immune system and looking at these genes and how they change and what does that mean for the cell structure and stuff like it is just, I think people really are starting to realize the the if we can grasp the genome and the understand what that means and, and then apply that knowledge, the things that we could be able to do is, you know, people, again, I, I you know, physics and, and stuff, it always gets all the play in the headlines, <laughs> you know, black holes and all this stuff. Oh, yeah. we're going to go to Mars and we're going to live on Mars and stuff. Yeah, well, without genomic information, how are you going to develop plants that can live on Mars or terraform the planets and like all, I mean, we're getting way out there, but that's the kind of like, you know, that's the stuff that I, I it's obviously way in the future and who knows if it's good or bad, we can argue the ethics of it. But this really is like a really amazing frontier of knowledge that we're on. It's a really exciting time to be a part of it. Um, I, it's, it's certainly becoming much cheaper to do these sorts of experiments, even though they're still, they're still very expensive, but it is certainly <laughs> getting cheaper. And I mean, it's driven, I mean, we, we benefit in the parasitology field 
by having um, other other fields, human genomics, really pushing um, the technology and uh, and the costs down, and and it's this trickle on effect to not only parasitology but all other non model organism research that we benefit from um, on these technologies and analytical tools and uh, all this sorts of stuff that um, that you just couldn't imagine even doing five, ten years ago. Um, mm-hmm. We could just do so much at scale now and there's just really, yeah, fundamental questions that we can, we can tackle now um, that would have been much harder to do before. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's only going to increase, right? Like yeah, you have the, the sequencing machine itself and how that works. You gave us a little description of that. But then there's, you know, the bioinformatics side, which is computational power, algorithms, machine learning, yeah. all of that kind of stuff that, that, that plays into it. So it's a really also a really neat, you know, um, merging point for all of these different fields. And so for people that, you know, young students that might be interested in this kind of stuff, it's like, yeah, did you ever think you could take your programming computer background and end up working in biology on worms or something? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think now it's getting to the point where it's just so easy to generate the data. It's become still a really tough, tough ask to analyze it um, effectively and, you know, new ways of doing it all the time it's i think i think it's uh, it's exciting from a number of fronts from from both methods development to to bioinformatic or, or, or computational biology or algorithm development there's just so much that can be done and um i you know i i, I in fact trained as a molecular biologist um and i didn't i didn't do any parasitology I only started parasitology in my postdoc. So I, I trained as a human molecular geneticist. And uh, it was just through, I don't know, good or maybe bad timing, but good timing for me that a position opened up and that was working on parasites. And I thought, I'll just go learn a bit of genomics and I'll come back and work on humans again. But I've, I've been hooked ever since. Yeah. And, and there's just so much scope, so much to be done in this field. Uh, and it's a really good time to do it yeah amazing well you know i'll let you go uh i appreciate you taking the time and breaking down some of these things uh for us for me and giving your thoughts on communication and the preprint stuff some things I, i didn't think about uh you know especially as as it relates to you know equitable access in terms of low and middle income countries and stuff like that really interesting points um so thank you so much for being here. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. No, my pleasure. It was great fun. Okay. Well, and we can do it again. I would love to continue. There's so, still so much more to talk yeah, about, so we can definitely do it, do it again. Um, and then just quickly, you can, because you're pretty active on Twitter, um, I, I find, and it's always nice to see you commenting on the different things you see, the preprints, you know, you give your your take on some of that stuff. So it's for people that are in the field or even just kind of want to like see some conversations that are going on about it, I would encourage you to follow Steve on Twitter. I'll let you give the, the Twitter handle. Yep. So it's uh Stephen underscore underscore Doyle, <laughs> the subtle, subtle double underscore, but um, yeah, do, do follow. Um... Right on. That's great. Uh, yeah. So Steve, thank you again very much uh, and enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Thanks. You too. Cheers. And there we go. 
again uh, many many thanks to Steve for joining the show it was uh, a really great conversation I really really enjoyed it and hope to do it again um, as you just heard you can follow Steve on Twitter at Stephen underscore underscore Doyle follow us on Twitter uh, at too bad for you also on Instagram at too bad for you send us an email too bad for you at gmail.com or leave us a voice message speakpipe.com slash too bad for you rate us subscribe all of those good things we so much appreciate it i think that was terrible grammar there but we do appreciate it and we will see you next time everybody stay safe love you lots bye for now